You can't feel it, but the Earth is slowing down, only a few milliseconds. So what does that mean? Well, a couple of geologists say 2018 will be the year of big quakes. There's a peak in the number of these large damaging events every, you know, 30-ish years. That is Rebecca Benedict, a professor at the University of Montana. She and another geologist, Roger Billum, at the University of Colorado, say they have studied the really big earthquakes over the years, and they've come up with a pattern. And now they've come up with a theory that is grabbing some headlines. Talking about places that are very seismically active, like around the Pacific and the Ring of Fire, in, you know, Java, Sumatra, Taiwan, New Zealand, um, South America, the west coast of the U.S. It caught my attention. I live in southern Illinois, and we have a bunch of little quakes during the year. From southern Illinois down to Memphis, the area is located along the so-called New Madrid Fault. Now, hard to say if this area will experience a big quake, but Dr. Bendick is predicting that there are other areas of the world in store for some major quakes. She co-authored a paper that appears in the Geophysical Research Letters that basically predicts that when the Earth slows down, we can expect more powerful earthquakes. Sure, my name is Rebecca Bendick, and I'm a professor at the University of Montana. And I study earthquakes um, and mountain building and tectonics. I'm, I'm reading this article, this research that you had done, and I guess you've been doing this research for a number of years, and it was finally published this summer. It comes down that you're saying we're going to have more earthquakes or bigger earthquakes in 2018. Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing I really want to say is that we can't predict individual earthquakes. So we're still really, really far from the holy grail of being able to say, like, hey, everybody, at 11 p.m. on whatever date, uh, everybody who lives in, I don't know, Seattle, put your hard hat on. Um, you know, we'd like to be able to do that, but we're really far from that. Um, so instead of, of, of having that capability, what I and my colleague Roger Billum set out to do was just to look at, um, in general, our earthquakes, and specifically the largest and most damaging earthquakes, do they have any kind of like pattern in time? Um, and lots of people have looked at this for ages. Looking, trying to see if there is some kind of time-dependent pattern of earthquakes. And, and mostly, if you look at the whole catalog, it looks like the answer is no. They're pretty much random. Um, but we started thinking about, are earthquakes more, um, do they have this special property that they load up and release over time? And does that influence how they arrange themselves um, and whether or not they interact with each other. So if you think of an earthquake instead of just like a single failure of a fault, more like a battery that has to charge up, and then once it's charged, it can go at any time after that charging interval. Because um, we know that tectonics has to like supply the basic energy for earthquakes. So you're, saying we're, so you're saying we're kind of at a full charge at this point then, right? With, yeah, so then okay. we looked at like four earthquakes that have a similar charging interval. Do they interact with each other? Um, because systems like neurons, for example, in your body, they have a charging interval and then they discharge by talking to each other. So we were curious.
earthquakes do this as well. And so we looked at the whole global catalog and we found like a pretty exciting and compelling pattern that, that events with a similar like charge up interval do tend to happen closer to each other in time than you would expect from total randomness. Right. So I'm reading here that you're that you found that it's every 32 years that, that there's an uptick in large quakes. Is that kind of what your 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 research is guide you to? Yeah. So what we find is like for all earthquakes with whatever charging interval, they have patterns in time. But the most common um, pattern is this like roughly, very roughly 32 year timing. Um, and that's probably because like the most common events in the catalog that we have are ones with a sort of, let's say, 20 to 50 year charge up interval. Um, and this is partly because these are the most frequent and common events on Earth, right? They have a short charging interval, so they're kind of popping off often. And we have enough data that we can see the pattern. So we saw this like, that it tends to be the case that there's a peak in the number of these large damaging events every, you know, 30-ish years. Um, and then we started wondering, like, is there anything else that's related to that outside of the earthquake cycle? And this is when we stumbled on the relationship to the Earth rotation, that, that the Earth, like, slows down its rotation also on a kind of roughly 30-year cycle. And the part about this that's really exciting for us and seems like for many people is that the Earth slowdown leads the spike in earthquakes by about five years. So why, so, so why is that? Kind of guide me through Earth spinning. It's beginning to slow down. Does that does that give the tectonic plates time to do shifting? They're not. There's not this gravitational pull. I guess if I'm thinking like a bucket of water, I'm spinning around. As I'm slowing it down, the water starts dripping down. Is that a good analogy? Yeah, so that okay. was the first, you're smart, because that was okay. the first effect that we thought yeah. about, that it was some kind of like sloshing thing. Right. Um, and we did the calculations, and it's, that effect is just way, 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 way too small to do it, but you're you're on the right track. Um, so the, the thing we came up with is, is basically the interaction of the slowdown with this charging period. So imagine that, like you said, after, you know, roughly 30 years has elapsed from some arbitrary starting point, like all of these faults are are fully charged up. So as we would say in Montana, and maybe you guys, they're, they're locked and loaded. <laughs> so they can go at any time. They can be discharged at any time. And then since everything's kind of ready to go anyway, um, if you slow down the Earth rotation, you you basically change the shape of the Earth a tiny bit. So the faster the Earth goes, the wider the equator is relative to the poles. Gets sort of short and fat. Um, okay. And then if you slow down the Earth, it wants to spring back to being more spherical. And so the idea is all these faults that are locked and loaded, then you slow down the Earth and and the shape kind of springs back which means that you just have this tiny little trigger, this tiny little increment of, of shape change that can kick all the locked and loaded faults into failing. So will that mean that some of these quakes will be even stronger than, than in past quakes? I mean, is that is that a possibility? Not really, because the, the strength or, like, we would say the magnitude of the events 
depends on the charging interval, not on the little like click that flips them into failure. Right. So they'll be just as strong as their as as much energy has been saved up on those falls in the time. In southern Illinois and in southeastern Missouri around the New Madrid Fault, we have little tiny quakes all the time, it seems like, that pops up. Of course, the big dramatic one was, you know, 200 years ago or so when it yeah. shifted the Mississippi River. Would we expect, even in some of these areas that have minor quakes, would we expect an uptick in, in more quakes, seismic activity then? And the short answer is probably not. When we looked at the catalog, um, it's complete only for these very large events, so we couldn't really do the analysis for the little events. Okay. But as you right point out, like the little events are happening all the time, so they're probably not super sensitive to this pattern. Um, and in addition, like PS sort of who cares because they don't do anything, right? They right. just maybe rattle your teacup a yeah. little bit. Um, and if we were gonna, if I were gonna design a planet that was safer for people, I would design one where we have gazillions of tiny earthquakes and no big ones. So those little earthquakes are kind of your friend. Right, right. <laughs> they release the energy without doing any damage. But the, you know, the other question is, would there, is it more likely that there would be a repeat of the New Madrid event? And uh, that's like probably the most famous earthquake ever. Um, and Probably, again, the answer is no, because we see that, that this effect is particularly strong for um, the events that have a short charging interval or renewal right. interval. And we know that New Madrid has a really long one. I mean, hundreds or thousands of years. And so it's probably, like, totally insensitive to this kind of little nudge. Okay. Um, and in fact, since there was already an earthquake there in the 1800s, and the, the rate at which that fault gets charged up is so slow, there's probably not enough energy stored on it to have another event of that size. You're right. For so, what, so give me an idea, you know, if you look at the entire globe, so what areas are you kind of keeping your eye on and saying this area, th these areas in the, on the globe, they're just ready to burst at any time? This study that I think is maybe the most useful is it, it reminds us that the places that have the strongest effect from from this understanding of ours are ones that have lots of large earthquakes anyway. And so we're talking about places that are very seismically active, like around the Pacific and the Ring of Fire in, you know, Java, Sumatra, Taiwan, New Zealand, um, South America, the west coast of the U.S., places that have earthquakes anyway. Um, and so the those are all places where people should be taking small and st simple steps to be prepared for earthquakes anyway um, because they happen often and they can be very damaging. So we, we like I like to think of this study as just like a little reminder on your calendar mm -hmm. to say, you know, we may be entering a period where the probability of earthquakes is, is higher than it is on average, so an enhanced risk. So today is a good day to, you know, prepare your earthquake kit and talk to your family about what you would do during a natural disaster. And these are things that everyone can do to get prepared. They're not super expensive. They're not super hard. 
no panic necessary, but why not mm-hmm. be ready for a natural disaster? In, in the different societies, you know, some of the more wealthier countries and, and some of the more poorer countries, I would assume that their, uh, their, their ability to prepare and to build structurally more sound buildings uh, are not it's very difficult for them. You know, we, we talked about Haiti. That was in 2010. They had a yeah. 7.0 earthquake. And then, of course, we have Japan, which had a magnitude 9.0. Japan, I'm assuming, has a little bit more wherewithal of restructuring and building buildings that can, you know, handle these bigger earthquakes, or as opposed in, into more, you know, third world countries. You know, Haiti, for example, you know, they just don't have the economics to do that um i guess my question is the the countries that do have the economic power to build better buildings are you seeing that they're really learning from these lessons and 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 getting to the point where they can build better structures and and better expect you know and and better handle some of these quakes yeah i think that's true so the example like i use a lot in in classes and things is uh if you compare the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, the one that disrupted the world right, series, right. Um, to the Haiti event, for, from a geophysics point of view, those are very similar events. They're both strike-flip earthquakes. They both had very similar magnitude. They both went through, you know, high population densities. And Loma Prieta killed 62 people, and Haiti killed something between two and three hundred thousand people so you can see the effect that you're talking about like countries that have more capacity to be prepared suffer from these events much less so you know the difference is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and so that tells you like one being prepared is better than not being prepared right and okay that's totally obvious and not everybody has the same capacity but it's not an all-or-nothing thing. So, you know, even in, in developing countries where there isn't, you can't build buildings in Haiti in the same way that you can build buildings in the Bay Area, but still, if individuals and communities are even a little bit prepared, it does help save lives and protect property. So have you had the opportunity to visit some of these areas, I mean, Japan or Haiti? Tell me about some of the places that you have visited to kind of see firsthand what they've done and the effects of of these uh, seismic activity. Yeah, so my most common area to work is in Asia, um, and my colleague Roger Billum went to Haiti after the Haiti quake, but um, I worked after the Nepal earthquake, um, the one in Pakistan, in Kashmir, um, India, uh, China. So I, I work a lot in Asia. Um, and there is, it's totally obvious that in places where communities, um, you know, know about their earthquake risk and take steps, whether small or large, to be prepared, that the impacts are much less. Like for even Nepal, which is, you know, one of the mm-hmm. poorest countries in the world, um, because Kathmandu had a long history of kind of earthquake preparedness um, and education and outreach around earthquakes, those that earthquake had many fewer fatalities than we were kind of expecting. So why is that? Is it because of these buildings? They, you know, they're not, I'm, I'm assuming communities that have 
more apartment type structures, you know, which t I would think tend to collapse. That I mean, where, where, how do all the deaths occur? I guess is the one is the one question or one thing to kind of think about. So one of the big things that makes um, cities really dangerous in earthquakes is corruption. So places okay. where like people can bribe the building inspectors to look the other way if they don't put enough rebar hmm. in the concrete buildings, then those are places where you see huge amounts of damage that you know shouldn't have happened. So, so human corrupt so so corruption and government is that the one of the biggest reasons for some of these building failures? Yep, it is. So wow. so. Bill and my colleague wrote a, a kind of famous article about the correlation between earthquake fatalities and corruption, and it's very high. It's it's remarkable. Um, and so even if, like, people on the ground know that they live in an area of earthquake risk, then they can, you know, demand that their houses and schools and hospitals get built correctly. Um and in places where it's mostly indigenous people who are living in kind of traditional housing, for example, dwellings that are built out of wood or grass are much more resilient than ones that are built out of stone. So and one of the things that Nepal has done is kind of work with local people in the countryside there to figure out ways to use like available materials mm -hmm. to build things that are a little more resistant. So even just using like metal sheeting for roofing instead of giant stones, um, mm -hmm. you know, can protect right. people. So it's not like you have to be Japan or the United States to protect people from earthquakes. You can just take incremental steps um, to do that. Right. Okay. Well, uh, where do you see your research going this year? I, I obviously, you, you know, you, the prediction is 2018 more earthquakes. How do you, as a researcher, kind of prepare for something like that? Yeah, so, I mean, to me, this, like, this whole experience really epitomizes what's wonderful about science, which is, you know, we we do our best to do an analysis like this, and we make a, a forecast, and then it's the job of all other scientists on Earth to check our work, and, and if we're wrong, tell us that we're wrong, and if right. we're right, tell us that we're right, and and this is sort of a fun one, aside from the sidebar of death and destruction. But like in you know four years from now, we'll have a really good sense is if this is right or not because we'll be able to look at the data and say, well, yep, we did see an uptick in the number of large events, or no, not at all. So we must have messed up somewhere. Right. So you'll have a you'll have a window of a few years to see if your prediction is correct, and so yeah, maybe yeah. to lay low. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know it's it's yeah. fun. I mean, it's rare, I would say, in Earth sciences because most things on the Earth happen really slowly. Most of the things I've like analyzed, you know, I won't know if I'm right until way after I'm dead. But this one we get. Hopefully, I right. will not be dead in four years. And and that does kind of bring up. I mean, you you're able to look at the work of other scientists from many many years ago. Are there any particular works, any particular scientists that had it dead right? I mean, they're just like you guys. You know, fifty years ago, you really you know you you really nailed it on that. I mean, do you have those scientists that you look to and look and look back at their work? Yeah. So I mean, generally 
in my field of earthquake studies, there are several people who we would consider like the fathers of this field who, who were just amazingly prescient. Um, but I definitely want to give some shout outs to two Russian scientists named Levin and Sarasova who kind of first saw the hint of this relationship between earth rotation and the number of earthquakes, um, you know, several years ago, way ahead of us. The missing piece, I think, for them was the was the mechanism, and so their maybe their work didn't get as much traction as it deserved. But we're definitely not the first people to notice this correlation. It, tell me, so you're in Montana, is where you teach at? Is that a good is that a good place to kind of sit back and kind of watch everything happen? Or yeah, I think sit back and <laughs> watch everything happen. <laughs> yeah, we do have earthquakes here. Um, and there's, they can be large, but they are very infrequent, so they're probably um, also unlikely to be affected by this particular mechanism. Yeah, and I was going to say, too, in Montana, there's probably not as many people to feel the earthquake either, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, and it's a sort of interesting thing because there has been relatively little research done on the faults and earthquakes here. I think for that exact reason, people are like, well, whatever, if it knocks a tree over onto a grizzly bear, who really cares? <laughs> so, and this kind of segues into this other, you know, uh, Illinois had approved the use of fracking, and of course there was a lot of uh, individuals who were in groups that, that were predicting we would start having similar type, uh, very, uh, I guess, more superficial or more, uh, what's the term, I guess, Higher, not as deep type earthquakes, I guess. And yeah. so, like in Oklahoma, so is, is there any correlation between the earthquakes that we think are associated with fracking versus the earthquakes that just kind of happen, you know, naturally? Yeah, so I would say fracking has in some ways like helped us to understand how earthquakes work, work better. Um, so, you know, that the basic like physics of what's happening in an earthquake, like you store up this load on the earth and then it snaps um, in, once you cross some critical threshold. That's the same whether the source of the energy comes from pumping wastewater into the ground or comes from plate tectonics. But we can see that, um, you know, the forcing, the source of that energy is different in those two cases. And, and frankly, we know more about the fracking forces than we do about tectonic forces because, you know, as long as somebody lets you see the data, you can you can actually see how much water is being pumped in at what pressures and what rates. And that helps us to understand, like, where those critical thresholds are. Yeah. So other than, okay, so I guess the fracking is a more modern, recent type, you know, I guess debating, depending on who you're asked, whether it's man-made or not, but are, are, is there anything else in, in years past that you could point to that you would say is, you know, if, if man had not done this, we would not have had these earthquakes, or is fracking so unusual that it kind of kind of skews your the, the data on earthquakes? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. To like the global earthquake cycle, it's, it's small. Like it, 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 it's a lot of events in Oklahoma and stuff, um, but they're mostly relatively small, so they wouldn't have showed up in our study at all. Yeah. Um, there aren't any over magnitude seven. 
Um, and no, I mean. So you're really talking. You're talking about. You're talking about giant earthquakes. I mean, seven point eight or or nines. I mean, that's what you're talking about as far as the more frequency of those type size of of quakes. Correct. Okay. Okay. We don't. We were. We were unable to do analysis on smaller quakes because the catalog isn't very complete for those. Um, but they're basically happening all the time anyway, so it might be rather hard to find any pattern. We just looked at the big ones, sevens, eights, and nines. Yeah, and so I, I guess in, in reading the, the the articles and kind of getting more familiar with it, I mean, there's there's when you get to a 7.0, you may have a 7.5, and there's a tremendous amount of difference just in, in that range, correct? That's right. All right. Well, very good. Thank you for your time and, and thanks sure. for your research. And we'll see if you. So, how long a period do you need? It's so 2018 rolls around, and then we're going to start kind of watching to see if we start having more earthquakes. At at what point do you figure out? Oh, you kind of missed this one. Yeah, I mean, I think by 2020 we will know. <laughs> okay. So you got you got two years to see if your prediction's right. Yeah, which for an earth scientist <laughs> is like a blink of an eye. I know. That's just like a flash. Exactly. All right. All right. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for talking to us. All right. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have fun.